0: You are listening to Part 2 of A Conversation with Stephanie McBride-Schreiner and Kristen McCabe-Lashawa on Childhood, History, and Critique, recorded in March 2015. I'd like to move on to a different a different question. As you're well aware, there have been a, a number of uh, significant labor disputes at universities around North America involving graduate students or part-time faculty. Uh, this is coming at a time where there's also been several decades of discussion about insecurity um, for faculty members, questions of overproduction of PhDs, all sorts of labor stability and justice questions. and. I would like to ask you about how you've confronted these issues or how you've thought about them. Uh, to put it into a question, how do the challenges in this area impact what you've done or what we are doing in departments training the next generation of historians? And perhaps we could start with Kristen this time.
1: Sure. Um Well, this has been a big issue at the University of Virginia where I've been at. Um, They've probably about halfway through my time here, they massively restructured not just the history department uh, graduate program, but the whole um, graduate program across the university, or at least for arts and sciences. And um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, what should a graduate program look like uh, what should graduate students be doing what should they be paid like all of these kinds of questions were definitely hotly debated um, one thing that I think that was um, so it wasn't without it, it sort of bumps along the way one thing that I think was positive that came out of it is that the department um, ended up very much limiting how many students it would accept in the program to begin with so my incoming class um, I think was about 23 24 people Mm-hmm. And the incoming classes now are about 10. And um, I think that, you know, it is wise to look at the market now and just say we can't keep producing this many PhDs when there just aren't enough jobs for them. And I think it's in some ways a lot kinder to um, limit the intake into graduate programs rather than have someone go, you know, six or seven years through a graduate program only to find they can't have a, find a job on the other end. So I think that's been helpful. But I think one thing that's kind of harmful and the way that I look at it is probably filtered through my interest in childhood is this idea of graduate school as an apprenticeship. And this idea, I think, kind of is formulated in the way of, well, graduate students do all this work and they don't really get paid very well, but it's okay because they're learning this trade, this profession – and then they'll graduate and go off and, you know, get these jobs and it will be great. And it's like that's not actually the story that statistically is true for a lot of people. And so I think we do have to ask a lot of hard questions about, you know, what should graduate school look like knowing that um, that most people aren't going to find that tenure-track job at the end of it.
0: And if you take the co- a cohort of people that, received their doctorates from 1998 to 2009. The AHA just did a a study, just published a study about a year ago on this, but if you take that 10-year cohort, the section of those PhDs that uh, stayed in the academy have academic positions. About a quarter of them, 25% of them, have uh, positions in part-time, adjunct, uh, temporary positions. And to speak to that just to speak to that concern, if you take a look at then what those contracts are, they're not you can't live on that or or it's extremely difficult to live on that unless someone else in your household mm-hmm. is essentially paying the bills. And I think that's when you get up to a quarter of the people who are working in the academic part of the industry, you know that made it through that part that are in that situation. I think that's a, a very significant ethical dilemma, and it certainly undermines the notion that, well, uh, future returns is what uh, justified the un- unjust relationships for graduate students.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Stephanie, what's your, what's your sense of, of these issues or your experience of these issues? What would you add? Well, Patrick,
1: I would...
2: Um, reiterate, I think what Kristen was describing as the University of Virginia is happening around the nation um, in North America. I know um, our graduate degree program, there's been a lot of conversations about limiting um, the number of incoming doctoral students. Yeah. Uh, there's also been an increase um, at least the Arizona State of um, graduate certificate program, as well, that um, train students to have a particular skill. And I've been fortunate, because at Arizona State University, there's a very strong public history program.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, when I entered my doctoral studies and actually entered the program, I also entered into a certificate program that I did concurrently, and it was a certificate in scholarly publishing. And my idea of doing that was, it was a backup for me. Um, (laughs) It was a skill that I knew if I had a certificate in scholarly publishing and I did internships in the publishing arena, I would have a backup. And as it turned out, um, I actually really enjoyed working in that field of scholarly publishing, and I ended up deciding not to go down the teaching path. So, although I was a grader and a teaching assistant for four years, um, I also took the public history methodology class and participated in a number of contract jobs actually through the public history program where I was doing local public history projects, everything from writing books to museum design and museum interpretive design, um, working for journals, um, through the university. And so I tried to broaden my skill set beyond just the teaching aspect and envision myself working outside academia. And that's the point that I'm at now. Actually, I'm applying. All of the jobs that I'm applying for are outside academia, working at museums um, for publishers, scholarly publishers. The public history program um, really offered me kind of a safety valve um, initially, but I found out that there really are a lot of jobs outside academia that, I, that are stimulating and rewarding and interesting to me.
0: So in a sense, that's a, a kind of response that's important in your life, but it's connected to another way that institutions have responded to right. this, this set of problems because they developed public history programs that you could participate in in curriculum to try to prepare you for that area of the, of the market. And I think the referring back to the recent... Uh, AHA study, um, and I'm blanking on the, Townsend's one of the authors, there's another author, but um, I think it's a very significant uh, percentage of PhDs work outside of the academy in these kinds of positions. It it might be um, between a quarter and a third, if I'm remembering the percentage. And and just to draw then also on Kristen's point of lowering the the number of of uh, positions in graduate programs. Part of that is also very institutionally driven. In Ontario, here for a long time, and it's still actually the case. The province would f- would would fund graduate students so much more than they would undergraduates, multiple times for every uh, undergrad uh, for every graduate students and master's students being worth less than PhD students, that there was a premium, in terms of generating institutional resources, on expanding your classes of graduate students as hard, large, large as you could get them, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not that was merited in terms of the things that were happening in the economy. And that still is going on, but it seems to me that there's been a, a recognition that that creates a problem and particularly in schools of education i think that they're getting smaller which is important if you're engaged in in the area of childhood. Kristen, one of the ways that that Stephanie has you know confronted the insecurity is is that's inherent in in becoming a historian is is through public history and the world of publishing. How are you doing it? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, so this was my uh, first year on the job market, and um, so that comes with a lot of anxiety, obviously. Um, I was actually uh, very fortunate to get a tenure-track offer, um, so I I will be going to a, a small liberal arts college and doing a lot of teaching, which I'm excited about, um, but before that offer came through, before I knew that there would be an offer, I was thinking about a lot of different Options and um, I was thinking about going into publishing and academic publishing, and so I think, I think for a while, I think it still remains there's this kind of stigma, you know, that if you don't end up with a job, there's uh, an academic job, I should say specifically, that it's it's a kind of failure on your part. It is just not the case. Um, It's just statistically there aren't enough jobs for the number of PhDs that are being. Uh, produced, and that it's not strictly based on merit, that there's a lot of sometimes very strange things that go into a job search that you aren't in control of necessarily. So, I think it's good that um, that we're having conversations about different options for people, and that, that they're all good, or hopefully they're all good options for them as long as they're happy in finding jobs that are fulfilling, um, that it doesn't have to be strictly in academia.
0: Yeah, and, and which... Which leads to another obstacle, but I'm not sure how we would do So there's public history, there's publishing, but I think about about education. Because for historians, what would be the obvious area that could relieve a lot of stress on the profession along these lines would be if there was a clearer avenue from graduate studies in history and secondary education in social studies and history. But there are yeah. a lot of barriers along those ways, along the way.
1: Right. So one of the things I was thinking about was teaching um, high school. Mm-hmm. And then I was, as I was looking into the requirements, um, in, at least in the state I grew up in, in Washington State, even though I had a Ph.D. or I would have a Ph.D. in history, I would not be qualified to teach high school history <laughs> yeah. because I wouldn't have a master's in education. And so the idea of, then, you know, getting your PhD and then going back and doing an additional master's, which is kind of exhausting to contemplate, and and kind of absurd in a certain sense that I would be qualified to teach college students, but not high school students. And so, yeah, I think that there are sometimes in, in going into education, um, at least public education here, there are sometimes these very strange obstacles.
0: Yeah, and... and- in a sense, without throwing any stones at the profession of education, this is the logic of professionalization that we're part of, too, as historians with the credentialism. We have ours, and there are, there are areas of turf that get carved up in terms of who who has the you know credential to apply for the job, but it grinds on in individuals in particular ways, and the absurdities that you're... I, I can just think of a particular... Someone that I met when I was a graduate student, Tony Rotundo, and he's a uh, uh, went to uh, got his PhD from Brandeis. Uh, I think the very similar classes. Uh, my dissertation advisor, Mike Grossberg. So they were friends. That's how I met Tony. But the other reason I had met him is because he had just published recently published what was a, a, a no. you know we use the word path breaking to. Too lightly, but certainly uh, an important book, American Manhood, which was a study uh, late eighties, early nineties in um, masculinity, the history of masculinity. Mm-hmm. He his co career has been at uh, Phillips Academy in Andover, mm-hmm. which is a late eighteenth century. I mean, it's one of the most prestigious high schools in in the U.S.
2: Sure.
0: one of the old, you know, one of our one of our best. So, if you have a PhD, you could end up at uh, Phillips Academy, but not necessarily at Central High School
2: right?
0: (laughs) in in whatever town. And it seems to me that that uh, structure, the structure of teacher certification, is something that's perhaps politically it's a brick wall, but if we were really serious about solving the problem, that might have to be dealt with. I don't know what your thoughts are about these issues, Stephanie.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting, Patrick, because... As as I was listening to you and Kristen talk about education, I was thinking of all of the opportunities for education, youth education, and teaching history to children in public history organizations. And I'm thinking of museums, mm-hmm. libraries, and um, certainly looking at museum jobs. Um, certainly. One important component, I feel, of the museum is to have youth education programs um, to teach children the history and heritage of a locality or of a personage. Um, this is a That's an exciting opportunity, I think, to um, not only promote the history of childhood um, to the larger community, but also <laughs> engage children in learning about history. Um, You know, the history of childhood, too, I think, when I go to a museum or I go to a library, I don't really see a lot about the history of childhood. But I think it's a really appropriate place to discuss the history of childhood and to have exhibits um, that are related to the history of childhood.
0: Well, Stephanie and Kristen. Thanks so much for being part of this episode of Childhood History and Critique. And thank you. Ho- hopefully we'll see each other down the road. Okay, yes, good.
2: And I just want to say good luck on your defense and uh, congratulations on your tenure
1: track job. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Take care, guys. All right, thanks. Take care. Bye. Thank
2: you.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.
0: You have been listening to part two of a conversation with Stephanie McBride-Schreiner and Kristen McCabe-Lashawak. On Childhood, History and Critique, recorded in March 2015.